If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City, one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City. The pastoral prayer this morning comes in the form of a poem by one of my colleagues, the Reverend Stephanie Kindle of Park Avenue Christian Church in New York City. Let us bow our heads together. A poem about the shooting of Jacob Blake. There were seven shots in this beloved's back, his back, and, 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 and three sets of eyes were watching from inside. Three sets of eyes watch from insides. Their heads, their hearts, their hands intertwined. They will feel this posture forever. Three sets of eyes watch from inside, and the seed of trauma is planted. We just have to wait. The flower, a hidden cut, a missed meal, or a harsh word, maybe a strike back, maybe, but it's part of the cycle now. We should expect it after all, we watered it from our couches and hashtags and complacency, attended to it less than three months, six years, four centuries ago, forgetting it was a daily job because white people can. Waited for each seed planted to emerge days or decades later, something will sprout, we know it's coming, we will clip it and replant it. Trauma-based power is the green thumb of white supremacy. Three sets of eyes watch from inside. Child eyes, but not naive. Young eyes and already tired. They've seen this before. White parental controls cannot censor the lived black experience. They stopped singing happy birthday because it was too painful. We still use it to wash our hands. We cannot wash our hands of this. Three sets of eyes watch from inside as the world watches them with one bated breath once more. Three sets of eyes, creator, redeemer, Sustainer, watch from inside. Don't see me, I pray. 
See me, they respond. See me. Amen. Our guest preacher this morning is Doug Manning. For many, many years, Doug Manning has dished out his gentle wisdom with compassion and conviction, leading him to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and a grief expert relied on by the media. His calling as an author and lecturer began after he served as a pastor and counselor for 30 years in churches in Oklahoma and Texas. As a result of his study on grieving and the role of the funeral in assisting a healthy grief journey and recovery, Doug wrote his first book, A Minister Speaks About Funerals, in 1978. He self-published the book and sold it primarily to funeral homes. In 1979, he wrote his first best-selling book, Don't Take My Grief Away From Me. And in 1983, he wrote When Love Gets Tough, The Nursing Home Decision. After that, he made the commitment to follow this dream full-time. So, with a lot of hope, luck, and faith, he changed careers and founded Insight Books as his publishing and seminar company. Insight has grown over the years and now specializes in books, video, and audio productions specifically designed to help people face some of the toughest challenges of life. You can also read more of his writing at thehappyheretic.me. Please join me in welcoming Doug Manning. Doug, we are so grateful to learn from you. I would like to express my appreciation to Laurie for giving me the opportunity to speak today. And I, I hope that it turns out to be a, a blessing to you. I'm not, necessarily, I'm not really a preacher. I'm more of a storyteller. And I have some things I'd really like to share. I've always had trouble with the Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer. Uh, that story is that the prophet Hosea was told by God to marry a woman, a, a woman the scripture called a wanton woman. And he married her, and of course the divorce, the marriage didn't work. And she went back into her wantonness, and he had to buy her back. And I never could understand why in the world God would want a prophet to marry somebody like that. And I, I struggled with it till I found that guy named Frederick Beekner. And he rewrites those stories, and he does such a beautiful job with them and makes them down to earth in our story. So I want to read you his version of Hosea and Gomer. Gomer was always good company, a little, a little heavy on the lipstick maybe, but a little less than, than choosy about men and booze, a little loud, but great at a party, and always good for a laugh. Then the prophet Hosea came along wearing a sandwich board that said God, the end is near on one side and watch out on the other. The first time he asked her to marry him, she thought he was kidding. The second time she knew he was serious, but thought he was crazy. The third time she said yes. He wasn't exactly a swinger, but he had a kind face and he was generous. And he wasn't all that crazier than anybody else. Besides, Besides, any fool could see that, that he loved her. Give or take a little, she even loved him back for a while. And they had three children whom Hosea named with queer names, like not pitied, for God will no longer pity Israel now that it's gone to the dogs. 
so that every time the roll was called in school, Hosea was scoring a prophetic bullseye in absentia. But everybody could see the marriage wasn't going to last, and it didn't. While Hosea was out hitting the sawdust trail, Gomer took to hitting as many night spots as she could squeeze into a night, and any resemblance to the next batch of children and Hosea was purely coincidental. It almost killed him, of course. Every time he raised his hand to her, it, he, he burst into tears. Every time she raised her hand to him, he was the one who ended up apologizing. He tried locking her out of the house a few times when she wasn't in by five in the morning, but he always opened the door when she finally showed up and helped get her back into bed if she couldn't see straight enough to get there herself. Then one day she didn't show up at all. He swore that this time he was through. He was through for keeps, but of course he wasn't. When he finally found her, she was lying passed out on a highly specialized establishment located above an adult bookstore, and he had to pay management plenty to get her out of the contract. She'd lost her front teeth and picked up some scars you had to see to believe, but Hosea had her back, and that seemed to be all that mattered. He changed his sandwich board to read, God is love on one side, and there's no end to it on the other. And when he stood on the street corner belting out, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. Nobody can say how many converts he made. But one thing that's for sure is that, including Gomer's, there was seldom a dry eye in the house. See, as a Baptist preacher, I, I had a terrible time with, with trying to straighten Gomer out. I, that's all I could focus on was Gomer and her sins. And I totally missed what happened to Hosea. He, Hosea changed his, his sandwich board. He went from being a very rigid, dictatorial, and, and, and unforgiving uh, person to somebody who spread love and talked about love. Uh, basically, he went out and acted like God acts, and he came back feeling what God feels. And understanding that kind of skinned my eyes, and, and I could begin to see that's really how Christianity works. Basically, it is as we give and as we share, it changes us. You see, Christianity is not just a bundle of, 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 of ideas or concepts that we're supposed to believe. It's not a system of belief. It's a system of giving and acting. When it becomes just a system of belief, it can, it can, be, it can be weaponized and turned into an actual weapon to use against people. We, I believe this, and therefore everybody that doesn't believe that is wrong. That sort of thing. It's, 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 almost, it's almost built in. It's almost an either-or thing. If my Christianity doesn't teach me how to love, it teaches me how to hate. If it doesn't teach me how to accept, I end up rejecting. If it doesn't teach me how to, how to bring people together and be a peacemaker, 
I, I can end up even creating war if you look at the history. We have to begin to understand this, this thing of Christianity is something that has to be practiced in order to have impact. See, over the years, I, I've had a whole lot of different, different uh, uh, sandwich boards in my life. As a young Baptist preacher, if I had a sandwich board, it would read on the front, I know how to be saved. On the back, it would say, too bad you don't. I went through a very painful metamorphosis and, and came out as, a, as an oxymoron called a liberal Baptist. And then my sandwich board would read, let me tell you all the stuff I don't believe anymore on one side. And the back side would be, I'm sure glad I'm not as stupid as a fundamentalist. Gradually over time, I hope my sandwich board has changed, and my desire for it to change is I hope one day my sandwich board reads, it's all about grace, and on the other side, I love you. But that will only happen as I learn to share and give and touch. When I go out and act like God acts, I come back feeling like God feels. I'm not a person who has a lot of visions or that sort of thing, but, but I had kind of one one time. I was coming home from a speaking tour in Canada that ended up in Winnipeg. And so that means that when I came into the United States, I came in just about in the center from east to west, and it felt like the whole United States was just spread out below, below me. And it was 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And I began to think about how many million people, how many millions of people were gathered in churches or mosques or synagogues or, or, or temples that more, at that very time going through, doing worship, going through ceremonies, practicing their faith, so to speak. And, and, and I, I began to think, what if just one time all of those people suddenly just burst out of the church and just started going out doing random acts of kindness. Everywhere they went, just random acts of kindness. If all the Christians in America did random acts of kindness, the polarization that's tearing us apart would disappear. If all the Christians, all the Christians went, did random acts of kindness, the poor, the poor would be taken care of the, the, and fed. Children would be educated and loved. If all the people did just simple acts of kindness, and I got all excited as I thought about that concept, and then I realized that I was crying inside because that wasn't a vision, that was a delusion. When I was pastoring in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I got tired of young, of young single people calling and asking me where they needed to go to meet nice people. And if I was honest, I'd tell them to go to the bar because they certainly weren't at church. And so uh, I got a group of them together and we started a singles, a singles group or a singles program. It was not a church thing at all. It was not a religious thing at all. It wasn't designed to be religious at all. It basically was designed for that purpose, a good place for people to meet nice people. And, and if they met up and married, that was fine, whatever. But I just wanted a place for them to meet 
they decided to meet on Wednesday night, which kind of was a little bit of a problem because, you know, Baptists have a midweek service. I think we're afraid all of our members will leak in between weeks, and so we have to have Wednesday night. So I would go over there after Wednesday night and, and lead them in the discussion. And, and, and it was a wonderful program, and I really enjoyed it. But I was about to be sent to Texas to suffer for my sins, and, and a guy came to see me in my office and said that he wanted to become, start helping to lead that group when I left. And, and I said, I don't know whether you want to or not. He was a Bible teacher at, at Oral Roberts University. And, and his background was Bible Baptist, which is even more conservative than Southern Baptist. And I couldn't see the connection with him at all. And I said, you know, I, I'm just not sure. And he said, yeah, I really want to. And I said, okay, Go to one of the meetings first and, and feel it out and see what you think. And he said, okay. So let, how about next Wednesday night? And I said, fine. Well, the group usually met in a, in a meeting room at some apartment complex, but once a month they would meet at somebody's house and have a cookout. And when they had cookout, uh, there would be drinking. Uh, there may have been drinking all the time, I don't know, but at cookout the drinking was much heavier and sometimes one or two of them might get a little bit tipsy and, and you know, I always, I always told them they were breaking the Baptist rule, which is don't ever take one Baptist fishing with you. If you take two, they'll leave your beer alone. And, and they got to where they could drink in front of one another. And, but it didn't bother me. I really didn't think about it until I realized that that next Wednesday night was cookout night at the singles program, and I was taking the, uh, the Bible Baptist, I mean the, 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 the Bible teacher from Oral Roberts University to cookout night. When I walked out to get in his car, I nearly had a heart attack. He brought his wife with him, and his wife was the dean of women at Oral Roberts University. So I was taking the Bible teacher and the dean of women at Oral Roberts University to cookout night at the singles program, and it was the worst night ever. When I walked in, they all were happy. They, <laughs> it, it, was, it was just wild. And a young woman who was a member of my church and, and one of the sweetest, nicest little girl, ladies you've ever seen, but that night she, she had on shorts so tight I thought she was melted and poured in them, and a halter top, and she was happy. And she got hold of me and wouldn't let go. Everywhere I went, she was there. And when I put them all, set them all down on the floor to try to lead a, a discussion group, if you can imagine leading a discussion group with a bunch of drunk people, she snuggled right in beside me. And I, I, I led the discussion group, and there happened to be two ladies there who, that were going through a very terrible divorce, and uh, divorces, and, and they really needed to talk. And so I had to pull them off somewhere one at a time and visit with them for a while and just leave my guest out there in the middle of that melee and, and I did. When I got, finally got through, I came out, the Bible teacher wasn't there. His wife was there and she was quite upset. And so as we were walking out the car, I was born Henri and I never did get over it. So I had to pop off and say, well, what did you think? And she said, listen, if you think I'm going to let that, my husband go over here and let that hussy rub herself all over him, you're crazy. And I said, well, it was kind of bad. But when I got to the car, the Bible teacher was sitting in the car crying. And I said, what is the matter with you? What happened? He said, all of my life I've taught and preached, 
that we have to go out where people are. And this is the first time in my life I ever did it. You can be a Christian all your life and never ever really go out and touch people. The best sermon I ever preached was on the third anniversary of my, of my pastorate in Texas. That was a pretty tough church. And I, and I didn't have much to brag on on the third anniversary. And nobody knew it was my third anniversary anyway. And I don't make a big deal out of that. But I got up on my third anniversary and I announced during the song service, early part of the service, I said, look, this is my third anniversary and, 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 uh, of being your pastor. And I haven't done much, but I've done something. And I'm not worth much, but I'm worth something. So I'm going to take up a love offering for me. And you can imagine the re response that got in the audience. I said, I, I know I'm worth a dollar. I may not be worth more than a dollar, but I think I'm really worth a dollar. So if you've got a dollar, I don't want any more than that or any less than that. But if you've got a dollar that you'd give, I want you to get it out and pass it to the end of the aisle, and they'll send the ushers out to get it. So the ushers went out and brought, and they brought back $454. Now, $454 in dollar bills looks like all the money in the world when you, when you stack it up on the communion table. And I just had them put it there and let the service continue while they all sit out there. And you know they're thinking, what kind of brass? What in the world is he up to? So when I got up to speak, I said, you gave me the money so it's mine. I can do with what I want. And what I want to do is I want to say, if you know anybody that needs any of that money, I want you to come and get it and take it to them. Well, I waited a while and nobody came. And I said, again, yeah, no, no, I'm serious. If you know anybody that needs any of that person who know them, I want you to come and get it and take it to them. And nobody came. And I said, okay, the money will be here until it's gone. And the only way it can be gone is if somebody takes it and to somebody that needs it. And my sermon that day was very, very short. My sermon was, if you're sitting here in church and you don't know anybody personally that needs anything, you came to church on the wrong side of the road. Two of the guys that avoided the, the, the guy in the ditch in the story of the Good Samaritan were on their way to church, a priest and a Levite. And they walked on the other side of the road to avoid the guy in the ditch. If you came to church and you don't know anybody, you're walking on the wrong side of the road. And I dismissed. I got the biggest old pickle jar I could find. I guess it came from a restaurant, a very large pickle jar. And I put the money in the pickle jar. And every service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, I simply took the pickle jar in and set it on the, ta on the table in front. Didn't say a word about it, just left there. The pickle jar preached the best sermon I've ever preached in my life. It just got, it, it hollered at us, it screamed at us. It, 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 it got to where the whole town was talking about it. I had Methodists calling and telling me that I was going to get fired over the pickle jar. And, and, and it, it took six weeks, six weeks to give away $454. Now, you can be very critical of that church. And, and of course, our automatic thought is, well, that couldn't happen at, at Mayflower. By golly, the 363 group 
would spend it before the benediction and the group from the, the ministry in Nicaragua would use every bit of it. But what if we said, okay, you can't use it for a program. It has to be personal. It has to be you, one person, taking it to one person. I wonder how long it would take us then. Are you, how many of us are sitting in church having come here on the wrong side of the road? Finally, after six weeks, there was 50-something dollars left. And so I got up on Sunday morning and I said, look, we've struggled with this and struggled with it and struggled with it. And the loneliest people in town are two blocks away from where, we, where I stand right now. They're over there in the jail. Jail was just a couple of blocks over from, where the, from our church. And I said, we... The, the scripture says, I was in prison and you ministered to me. And a young lady who happened to have a terminal illness raised her hand and said, I'll take that to the jail. And then it became interesting to me what she bought. She bought playing cards. Uh, she bought cigarettes. She bought uh, snack food, things that she bought magazines for them to read. She didn't buy a single New Testament, nor did she include a single gospel track. It was cups of water in his name, trying to meet the needs of people without any ulterior motive whatsoever. I don't know what that did to the prisoners, but I kind of know what it did to that young lady. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to fool you. When you start off trying to really share grace to people, trying to really love people, you, you find yourself having to make a lot of strange decisions and, and maybe even having to, make, to, to bump up to some criticism. When Oklahoma voted to go wet, I was 27 years old and pastor in Weatherford, Oklahoma. Uh, Everybody was surprised when it went wet. Will Rogers said Oklahoma would be dry as long as the Baptists and the Methodists could stagger to the poles. And here we did. We went wet. And every church, nearly every Baptist church in Oklahoma immediately voted that if any of their members took out a liquor license, they would be excluded from membership immediately. Well, a member of my church took out a liquor license. And I refused to do that because to me it was saying when he took out a liquor license he stopped being a human being and started being a liquor dealer. And I wasn't willing to do that. I got caught in a meeting in Tulsa with seven other ministers in, the, in a hotel room, all of whom had led their church in this dynamic stand against alcohol by voting to kick people out of church. And I tried to get out of the room before they found discovered me and I didn't make it. And then I got preached at until I, I really expected them to sing 15 verses of just as I am to see if I would repent before I could get out of there. I came home and went to the barber shop and Bob the barber, it's a single barber shop, just him. And, and Bob was a good friend of mine and his, his wife and family were in church and he, he was not a member of any church and he and I talked about that. 
And just as, as, as he started the haircut, he said, Doug, what are you going to do about Howard? Howard was the liquor dealer in my, that's in my church. And, 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 and you know, being uh, with my background, you, you, you think, oh my gosh, that just destroys the witness and all that sort of thing. But I, I said, I'll tell you what, Bob, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to acknowledge that my church has failed Howard every, much as bit, every bit as much as he could possibly fail us. And he said, how come? I said, well, you know, his wife, he and his wife separated. And during the separation, he suddenly came to church, never been in church in his life. He didn't have the best reputation in town, you know, that sort of thing. And he, and he came down to the front like Baptists do and presented himself to, be, to, to, to become a Christian and, and be baptized into, and a member of the church. And nobody believed him. Everybody assumed he was just doing that trying to get his wife back. I was included in the doubters. I baptized him thinking, ah, he's just like, it's just a show. And I watched us freeze him out. He would come to church, nobody but me would speak to him. Nobody invited him home for lunch. Nobody invited him even to join the Sunday school class. And finally he dropped out. And I said, now I'm under pressure to kick him out. And I just can't do it. And I looked up, Bob was really moved, and he said, you know, when a man's down's a terrible time to kick him, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. Well, the next barber, the next haircut, did you ever notice that barber shops always seem to have an extra chair? <laughs> a two barber cha shop, shop chair will have, two barbers in a shop will have three chairs. Well, this guy had one, he had one barber, he always had two chairs. I was getting a haircut, and Howard walked in and sat down in the chair next to me. And we were visiting. And a guy walked in, it's one of the crudest guys in town, vulgar in every way, had a terrible reputation. He, he, he was an insurance and, and real estate agent, but you know, not a very popular one. He, he would buttonhole people in a rainstorm trying to sell them for, for force insurance on them. And, he, and he, just, he just wasn't a nice guy at all. And he walks in, and you can just see his eyes light up. He had the Baptist preacher and the Baptist liquor dealer in the barber shop at the same time. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. And so he sat down and said, well, preacher, I guess you Baptists have the liquor business kind of sewed up in this town. Ha, ha, ha. And I glanced at Howard and if he'd had a, if, it, if there'd been a crack in the floor, he'd gone through it. And I said, well, we decided if we were going to have it anyway, we might as well have good people selling it. And I said, unfortunately, they didn't take that precaution when they invented insurance. And all of a sudden, he got very tense in the room, and Howard suddenly had some place he had to go, and so did the other guy. Well, every afternoon about 4 o'clock in Weatherford, a lot of the business people would gather at the Miller Drugstore on Main Street to have coffee or Cokes and visit. And I went there quite often just to see people and visit with people and catch up on the town gossip, I guess. I went over there one afternoon, and I met Howard right at the front door to Miller Drugstore. And he stopped me and he said, Doug, 
do you think those, it'd be okay if, if I came back down there to church? Well, what could I say? <laughs> they didn't want him before he went in a liquor store. <laughs> now he was a liquor dealer. All I could say was, Howard, I want you. And I want you to know that I love you. And he hugged me right there on Main Street. I don't know how many people saw the Baptist preacher and the Baptist liquor dealer hugging one another on Main Street, but I'm sure some did. Well, you know, I could tell you that uh, I could tell you that that singles group, after that wild night, they had met on their own after we left and said, you know, we're trying to build something here that's different than a bar, and we're turning it into a bar. Let's agree among ourselves not to do that anymore. And I guess that's important. But let me tell you, what's also important is what happened to that Bible teacher, that ORU Bible teacher. It changed his life. He had to go through some pain in the process, but it literally changed his life. And I can tell you that Howard sold his liquor store and also became a broker. He was a very intelligent man. And I guess that's important. But I also want you to know what happened to that Baptist preacher who got hugged by a, by a liquor dealer on Main Street. I never got over that. And I never want to get over that. Because it's when we go out and act like God acts that we come back feeling what God feels. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching from Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.